And welcome to episode 52 of the Retrospectors podcast, our 2020 wrap-up part two. So James, how are you going? How was your New Year's? I mean, I saw you, of course. Have you uh, recovered, fully recovered from your hangover? Oh yeah, I was bright and cheerful the next day, Pat, although I hear you uh, had a bit of a rough morning the night after. Yeah, mainly, mainly lots of sleeping. So James and I couldn't actually get home as early as we wanted because we checked the uber prices at 12 30 and they were roughly i think it was 155 dollars for the for the trip <laughs> home so we decided to wait a couple of hours till that had dropped rather dramatically uh and we get home at a cheaper we were uh wearing out our welcome there so uh sorry to our very <laughs> gracious hosts uh of new years i hope we weren't too much of a bother but yeah no i was okay um polished off most of half of a whiskey bottle uh but yeah <laughs> had a good sleep the next day and it was uh, mostly okay i remember um, getting into are... an argument with a couple of people um and then once the argument was over like the party seemed to have ended like hours ago and i was just sitting in the middle of the room with the guy um so i don't know where that time went uh sounds like uh you know just the usual fare though the the problem is always james that you and i get in these big arguments at parties but now since the podcast we can actually have those arguments online on air for the greater community to enjoy rather than being shunned by a friend group so i i think it was a it was a good move for us to uh, to start doing this podcast. James and I are, of course, the Retrospectors podcast each and every fortnight. What we normally do is play a classic or niche game of the past from start through to finish and then have a deep dive review and discussion of it. This fortnight, since we're at the end of 2020, at the end, well, beginning of 2021, and we're at the end of season two of our show, we want to do a wrap up. Uh, what we did last year was we did like a game of the year episode where we went over all the different games we played and we ranked them in terms of what did best in each category, you know, best music, best graphics, etc. This time we're going to do something a bit different. The only concern with that game of the year structure is that it can be a bit of long drawn out and there's a lot of redundancy and repeating ourselves and reiterating ourselves. And we think that while it was valuable last year, it ended up being a bit dry. So what we're doing this time round is instead of talking about what games do what best in this specific category, James and I have each selected three substantive discussion points, uh, ideas that have arisen from multiple episodes or games or tangents that we weren't able to fully explore on the specific episodes and we want to have a discussion about these things today. So that's what uh, this episode is. It's substantial discussion about video game ideas using examples and related to many of the games we've played over the past year and other more modern games where it's relevant. Yeah, we might sneak in a, a few little uh, best ofs from, from this year too. I'm kind of curious to see... Uh, what you liked the most out of the games we played this year, Pat, because for me, I don't think there were too many that stood out 
compared to year one uh, as standout titles. Yeah, th- this year was certainly a more stable experience, whereas last year I felt that like that needle was waving all over the place. Yeah. There were, were one or two standout good and bad games, but we played, I think the average quality was much higher. But we're, like James said, uh, we'll have a quick wrap up right at the very end where we quickly summarize maybe the top one or two games that we played this year. But uh, for now, let's get stuck into the discussion. All right, Pat, so where do you want to take us? So the first point I would like to talk about is um, is this idea that the experience of playing a game for the first time as you learn it is fundamentally different from the experience of a playing a game that you're familiar with and that you understand deeply. Getting some uh, Dark Souls vibes here. I don't know why that is, but uh, I think that's the only game you've played before. Well, Dark Souls is definitely... the Playing Dark Souls at the end of this season is a thing that made me, I guess, start reflecting deeply upon this difference. But the the game that really kicked it off is a game that we played right at the start of the season, and that game is Heroes of Might and Magic 3. So Heroes of Might and Magic 3 is a game that's almost university, universally beloved. Everyone loves Heroes of Might and Magic 3, and not many people have many bad things to say about it. And in fact, James and I both highly recommended it. We both think it's a very good game. However... Our one substantial point of criticism, or at least one of my substantial point of criticism, is something that I didn't see a lot when people were talking about Heroes of Mind and Magic 3, which is what the learning experience is, what the learning curve of this game is. And the fact is, HOM 3's learning curve and learning experience is both brutal and poor game design. When you play Heroes of Mind and Magic 3, the only way to gauge army strength is to ram your army into the other guy's army and hope it works out. The only way to know what building to, whether you should build one building or another building when you have 20 options from the first mission is to just build one and hope that everything works out. And it's the same with unit production. There's a lot of guesswork in those first, I'd say at least five hours and probably closer to 10 hours that you spend learning the game. But once you have a grasp on the fundamental game mechanics and you can start engaging in the strategy in a meaningful way, then all of a sudden you start to see why the game is as highly regarded as it is. So I wanted to see what you thought, James. Um, Do you think that when we talk about video games, it is critical that we make this distinction for all games? Do you think it's something that we need to keep in mind for certain games or um am i making a bigger deal of it than uh than it really exists it's hard for me to tell because for the majority of the games that we review we're doing so as people who have played the game for the first time and obviously there's a few exceptions one of the things that we've noticed from people who we've spoken to who listen to our show is that most people start listening to our show listening to episodes from games that they've uh played already Um, Which means that I think that for the first time listeners, maybe our opinions are going to feel a bit, you know, disconnected to what what, what their feelings are. Whereas I think that of somebody who's listened to, you know, a few episodes and then are starting to pick and choose from our catalogue for things they're interested in, uh, our opinions, I guess, on the game 
is going to match up with their, you know, first experience as well, right? That's a good way to put it. I think what it comes down to is that the opinion of the critic is almost always going to be fundamentally different from the opinion of the fan. Like if there's something that you have played a lot and are super familiar with, you're just in a different sort of position of understanding than you are of a person who's only played it through once. And I just think that there are some games that, I guess, ramp up that understanding curve better. Like, as much as I hate to admit it, I think Vagrant Story, which we did in Season 1, does a better job ramping up the complexity and difficulty of its encounters than Heroes of Might and Magic 3 does. Like, I think that what you need to do like the thing is the nature of our show because we mainly do short games that could be reasonably completed in a fortnight we often do games that aren't as complicated as something like heroes of mind and magic 3 so that there aren't an endless source of comparisons but i think vagrant story is definitely a valid one that game is complicated as hell but it doesn't dump everything on you at once it gives you a very limited set of tools and then it gradually expands upon them and i just wonder if heroes could have really scaled back those early missions to have smaller encounters with smaller forces controlling less heroes having simpler objectives and then gradually build up instead of just having like this on mission two, you start the game with like four heroes. Like it's, it's just crazy. So I think with the experience of learning and getting better at something, I think that, um, and we identified this in the Hitman episode specifically, I think there's, you know, roughly three stages to the learning process, which is, uh, information gathering, um, putting together a plan and uh, refinement and execution. Um, so, for example, and you know, two games that are easy to show this kind of learning curve against are uh, both Dark Souls and Hitman, right? When you fight a Dark Souls boss for the first time, you kind of go in, you bash your head against it, you get in there, you try to see each of its attack patterns and memorize them. And then, you know, once you've got all the information, you can go, okay, I need to put together a plan of how I'm going to beat that boss. And oftentimes that's as simple as saying, I'm just not going to get hit. Um, but, you know, even if you've got that plan, you know that he uses this attack and you need to dodge it in this way, that doesn't mean you're good enough to do it. You know, you've got to refine your technique until you can do it. So once you've gotten the information, you've put together the plan to beat it, and you've gotten it good enough to enact that plan, then your learning has kind of um, gotten there. With Heroes of Might and Magic 3, I think that one of the issues with the learning curve is that each map is ex- is quite long. Like, I'm talking like one to two hours per level, potentially. So if you royally fuck up a mission, you kind of have to spend, you know, another hour um, trying to put together a plan and use that information that you've gotten. And it can be kind of frustrating. I think uh, the price of failure in this kind of game is a lot higher for there to not be, you know, a lot of smaller, simpler levels to begin with. I and mean, there were some, but I think that there could have been a much gradual curve to kind of, you know, uh, fit in naturally with the way people learn to play games. See, I kind of view it in terms of you're incompetent, then you reach a stage of competence, and then you have mastery. And I think what Heroes 3 offers is extremely difficult to reach mastery. Uh, Like, it's a very complicated game, obviously. So 
I think Curious Re is enjoyable from the moment that you get a basic grasp of its systems and then you keep playing it and it's enjoyable the whole time. But yeah, until you got a basic grasp, it's not enjoyable at all. And this kind of leads me into one of the points I was going to bring up, which is the idea of games that are kind of like work uh, and games that are kind of like, you know, for fun uh, and purely like for play experiences. And I think that as somebody who's struggling to get good at a game, that kind of feels like, you know, work. You're putting in effort to get better at something. Whereas, you know, Patrick, for example, will come home after a day and, you know, play Counter-Strike or something he's played a thousand times before in order to relax, right? When you, when you, you know, you're tired and you want to have some fun after work, you usually gravitate towards games you're really comfortable with because generally you've got, you know, not only a bias towards these games, but the ease in which you can play them with your brain half turned off makes them a lot more relaxing so let me let me begin by disagreeing with that premise i think that anytime i'm voluntarily playing a video game that it doesn't feel like work can you can you elaborate on what you mean by that because games i play all games whether they're complicated or not to relax uh even if they're incredibly hard to understand it's still on some level a relaxing thing Something that I noticed a lot when talking to people, and this might just be anecdotal evidence on my half, obviously, um, is that like lots of players who work long hours um, often gravitate to you know silly for fun games where you don't have to put a lot of effort in to beat, and a lot of people who are often unemployed. I actually have quite a few unemployed friends uh, really gravitate towards these like. Uh, very time-consuming, almost work-style games like World of Warcraft and things where you have to put in, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours doing tedious, busy work in order to, uh, you, know, you know, progress your character, right? So I feel like, you know, humans in general need to have this good work-life balance, and I think different games can kind of fill the gaps in for you if you're playing the right things, uh, depending on your schedule. Okay, I, I can accept that there are people who are unemployed who play specific kinds of video games for work, but I don't think it necessarily works the other direction. I don't think, therefore, that anyone who plays complex or difficult to understand or challenging video games is seeking out work. I think that plenty of people relax with things that take like people some people relax by going to the gym and getting exhausted and that's actively relaxing for them and certainly there are plenty of games i've played where i've come home from work and i'm tired but i've still got stuck into a you know like a game like dota 2 which is a very complicated difficult game i'm not saying that these games aren't complex but i more mean that as you get more familiar with a game I think um, it becomes a lot easier to dive into, right? Um, I find, even though Dota's hard, uh, I still play a lot of it after work when I'm tired. I'm not saying that, um, you know, for play games or like these silly, super easy games. I more mean that experiences that you're familiar with are ultimately like more enticing uh, and more relaxing sure. than you know when you when you're playing a game and you don't quite know what to expect there's like this sense of tension there right 
you're not comfortable or familiar with it. No, okay, so that is a fair point because there's definitely been times where I've like got a new game or I've needed to start a new game for the podcast and I've been like... You procrastinate by playing something you're more familiar with, right? Well, yeah, like I got something, I think it was Dragon Age 3 Inquisition and the game started and there's just, the map opens and there's a million things going on and there's so much happening and it's like, I don't want to deal with understanding everything that's going on this game like when I've only got 45 minutes before I reasonably need to go to bed so I I get it in that sense for you I, I'm just saying that I don't mind something um something challenging as a way to relax like most people wouldn't consider the process of repeating a boss 35 times in a row necessarily the most relaxing thing in the world but you know that's what's fun for me so yeah, I, I just think you need to be careful not to conflate complexity with work or challenge with work. I can see how someone who doesn't work would seek out something to fulfill that void in other ways. You know, oftentimes, and you see this online a lot, right, when games get updated quite regularly, the people are always talking about, like, the glory days of their game when really... You know, the game's progressed a lot in the past few months and they're no longer familiar with it and they miss that feeling of familiarity with the game, right? There are people I know online who've been playing like a lot of the older Dota patches because that's what they remember as being fun. Um, I know a lot of people, I think you'd be play, a lot of people play the older editions of Counter-Strike, right? Not everybody jumped into Go. Are there still still 1.6 servers? 1.6 is still kind of alive. 1.6 held on for a very long time because Counter-Strike Source had a lot of problems as a video game that they gradually they gradually fixed over the years. And even when CSGO first released, it had significant, significant problems that they gradually got on top of. But I would say in this day and age, pretty much everyone just plays CSGO. But uh, yeah, it, it took a long way to get there. I will counter what you're saying by saying that sometimes nostalgia actually has... It's not just nostalgia. Um, Overwatch comes to mind. Uh, I don't know where that game is at the moment because I haven't played it in a long time, but the game certainly got worse, in my opinion, from what that game used to be. Overwatch, when it was first released, was very much a hybrid between a first-person shooter and a MOBA. 100% it was a hybrid, but as time went on, it increasingly shifted to the MOBA side uh, until there was an extended meta where the FPS element of the game was basically completely eliminated for seven months straight. Hmm. So if you're in a meta like that, if you're in a situation like that, sometimes the complaints about the past metas can be completely valid and legitimate. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. Um, I think that, I mean, I think it's a combination of things, right? Um, and I think a lot of games, I think uh, World of Warcraft Classic is the perfect example of this. Uh, I think that mm. lots of people remembered that game as being something a bit different uh, than it was. I don't think the game was able to recapture that same feeling for a lot of people uh, for an extended period of time. I believe the f like all of the end game content got destroyed uh, quite soon after release and I don't... I think that the, you know, the online communities just 
it's not the way it was back then. I don't think it's done a good job of uh, recapturing that spirit that people were after. But the thing is, James, it can't. I, I wrote an article about this, uh, Daisy or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. You should check it out on our website. Uh, but the gist of it is that the reason World of Warcraft and, you know, a game like Daisy was so magical and we remember it so fondly is because back when people were playing these games, they didn't understand them. They they didn't think about them in terms of how they think about MMOs today. If you're a good MMO player today, you've downloaded six mods for your screen and you've got optimal questing routes and you've got all this other stuff. But when people played WoW back in the day, it was an adventure in a world. And that's all it was to a lot of people who were playing their first MMO for their first time ever. You can't recapture that. It, it's literally impossible. And just putting, just creating WoW Classic, just creating that game isn't going to recreate the experience because the people who are playing the game have just changed fundamentally in how they perceive those kinds of games. So I completely agree with you. Um, WoW Classic was kind of doomed to failure from the very start. Yeah, and it's kind of funny to link back to our, you know, overarching point. I think these games are a perfect case of where the experience while learning is actually better uh, than the post-learning experience. I think that um, these games are more fun when you don't know what the reality of them is, right? Like uh, when you everything's this fun playground, um, and then once once you've learnt, some of that magic disappears, right? I see a lot of people... Yes. Uh, I see that happen to a lot of people playing a lot of card games where, you know, kitchen table magic is an absolute delight for them. And once everything becomes a bit more serious, uh, that kind of drops away from them. You know, people are no longer playing their silly, wacky decks. Um, everybody's playing, you know, the ones they found online that are good and are going to get results. And that kind of, you know, uh, playing a different deck, every uh, every game just disappears. I would say the only other thing I'd add to that is that it's not just one person being ignorant. They need to be ignorant as part of a community mm. because if you've never played an MMO before but you're playing your first MMO and all your friends are familiar with MMOs and how they work, you are not going to get that fantastical, magical experience because when you ask for help, your friends are going to explain it to you in kind of like a mechanical dry way, you know, to get you to rush to the end game to where the real game is. Yeah. Or the same thing with Magic or Daisy. The way you can't really interact with these games by yourself, or at least it's very hard to nowadays. So you need kind of like a shared ignorance amongst the community to kind of get that effect. Yeah. It's, uh, Something that's very hard to achieve in today's day and age. Yeah, that value, uh, you kind of burn it as you use it, right? Like, as you get better, yes. you can never have that experience learning ever again with that game. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's sad in some ways because a lot of times you do have these, you know, really incredible memories with your friends playing these new games for the first time. I remember playing uh, playing Heroes of New Earth and Dota for the first time with my friends and not having any idea of what was going on. <laughs> um, but we still had a good time and, you know, we sat there being bad and getting flamed by our teammates and flaming them ourselves. Um, and, you know, um, I mean, that experience is somewhat still going strong today but uh, <laughs> but uh you know those that initial learning curve is gone forever for me and it is for many people but you know 
memories are good. Yeah, I mean, what I'd say to anyone who misses that is you really need to just keep your eyes peeled for any games that are weird. Yeah. Because when when DayZ first came out, no one had any fucking idea what was going on with that game. Like, you'd read weird articles about it and videos would pop up on YouTube about people being robbed and you couldn't understand it and you were confused. So if ever, and I mean, it's going to happen again. There's going to be another video game that pops up and everyone will be like, what the fuck is this? And not understanding and you'll need to do registry edits and install weird mods to get working. If you see a game like that, get involved with it because it really is a very unique experience being involved in the community when no one has any fucking idea what the game it is you're playing. So, so yeah, I, I say that to everyone. Keep an eye out because you won't regret the experience of like learning a game alongside everyone else. It's, uh, it's really, really a wonderful one. Yeah, another specific example I wanted to bring up um, in mm -hmm. terms of this idea of the learning versus, you know, being learned kind of gap. There was recently a big controversy on all of the Call of Duty subreddits and forums about uh, the introduction of skill-based matchmaking, um, which, Patrick, I think you'll be familiar with. Oh, my God. I, I'm sorry, I'll let you finish. I have, no, no, I have go, opinions do you about it. Do you want to talk about it? Because I think you know probably know about it more than I do. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure about your point, but I'll just explain this idea and then you can bounce off me. So basically, uh, on the Call of Duty subreddit, and it seems to be most of the people in the Call of Duty community, I'm, I'm not sure 100% what the number is, but at the very least on all of the COD subreddits, they fucking hate skill-based matchmaking. Like, they loathe it. They do not... If you're... A lot of these Call of Duty players do not want to be put into a server with players of similar skill to them because i think the way that logic works is that when they're put in a server with good people they have to try hard to win instead of picking stupid weapons and running around killing new players now <laughs> i think this is one of the most fucking retarded points of view that i've ever heard in my entire life Skill-based matchmaking should exist for literally every single competitive game because it means that no matter what skill level you are, you can have an enjoyable time playing the video game because you're playing roughly with people of your same skill level. The only explanation I can think of for not wanting it when you don't want to try hard is so that you can stomp new players which is a terrible thing to want to do because if you're stomping new players, then a new player who is completely out of their league is getting crushed and they feel horrible. Uh, sorry, that's that's my rant about skill p COD players. COD players are retarded. Skill-based matchmaking <laughs> is essential. Uh, no, I, I broadly agree with you, um, but I, want to, I thought it was interesting in terms of this discussion because in a... Say in COD with skill-based matchmaking, theoretically, you are never going to progress from that uh, stage of learning to having learnt the game, right? You're always moving up in challenge, but you're moving up and being, you know, matched against harder and harder players. So you're constantly 
being forced to improve, right? There's never this point where it tapers off and suddenly you can play and relax and, you know, just destroy everybody because, you know, you've you've conquered the game, you've become a god amongst men. Um, and I think that that experience is kind of what they're talking about, what they want to get from the game is this, you know, post-learning fun um, but, you know, obviously, like you said, it's kind of selfish to want to do that um, and kind of ridiculous. I don't think it's sustainable at all. But, you know, with this in mind, you can kind of see what they're after, right? Yeah, I can understand the desire to stomp noobs because it feels great when you <laughs> go 30 kills and two deaths. Like, I get that. But to me, I would rather go 30 and six against other good players. So... I would rather earn my victory by playing well against other good people than I would... The thing is, James, I'm already better than those players. The people I'd go 30 and 2 against, like, I've got nothing to prove to them. If we play 100 times, I'm always going to go 30 and 2 against them. In fact, maybe I'm unusual in this, but if I had a choice every time I play Call of Duty to be matched against pro players, like the best players... I would snap that up instantly, and that is all I would do. I would play so much Call of Duty if I could be matched with other good players 100% of the time because that experience would force me to improve as a player so much faster, and I'd have such a good time, and every time I got a double kill, it would feel amazing because the value of a double kill against a, against pro players is worth a hundred times as much as going 30 and two against new players. Well, that's interesting to me because really, if a pro player was getting matched in your game, they'd be getting this thing that they're arguing for, right? I think it's, it would be fair if there was an opt-in queue where lesser skilled players could opt-in to get matched with higher skilled players, right? Then there's nobody getting stomped unawares, like they fully know what they're queuing into, you know. And obviously, there's issues with splitting the player base, but uh, I don't see any issue with that because you just put yourself in the shoes of the less skilled player, right? Getting matched against these stomping pros. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, I'm kind of arrogant and think I'd be able to raise to meet the challenge. But if you're playing a you know, there are online chess challenges you can do that everyone enters, right? Uh, so you can have grandmasters playing against 1,200 players. But as the league goes on, it matches winning players against other winning players. Towards the end of the league, if you're the grandmaster and you've won 80% of your games, you're not playing against 1,200s towards the end. So even like a two-hour league in chess, which has a thing with the best players and the worst it's still rapidly changing the skill brackets. I I just don't like the idea of having that much variance in the skill differentials because there's going to be a point where where the skill gap is so large that it's actually impossible for the new player to do anything. I wouldn't mind, maybe, maybe a compromise would be to widen the skill range instead of having it as tight as it is. But I, I would argue that there's, you know, plenty of natural variance within playing players of roughly the same skill level as you anyway. Yes, yeah, so I agree with you that these new players should definitely not be getting stomped constantly uh, and that these uh, more advanced players need to uh, suck it up, as it were. Um, Pat, where did you want to go from here? 
Well, I've got another point, but James, what about we have a quick music break? A music break? We don't even have any music to play. <laughs> There's no music <laughs> well, James, left. Yeah, James, what about, I mean, last last time uh, I just picked some random tracks, so you can pick some random tracks, or you could pick a track from one of the games that we played this year that you didn't pick for the episode. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to pick a song, um, and I'll, uh, I'll edit it in. Yeah, no. <laughs> All right, so I'll pick a song from the uh, the game that had the best music of any game we played this year, um, and that was Dun 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 System Shock. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It was not System Shock. Uh, it was Katamari Damacy, and I don't think it was particularly close either. Although. There were a couple of good tracks from uh, Earthworm Jim and Lunar here and there. But uh, my favourite soundtrack of the games we did this year was easily Katamari. It's uh, very tonally consistent for a game going for its own very distinct and bizarre tone. So um love to share some more of it with you guys. Wonderful music from Katamari Damacy. Uh, Patrick, did you have a particular... Actually, maybe we'll save that for later. You can tell us what, uh, what which episode you think had the best music. Uh, unfortunately, I have to agree with you that Katamari <laughs> Damacy had the best. However, for the in the interest of diversity, I will... Um, I'll find another track uh, for us to play later on the episode. Yeah, and uh, once again, I need to veto Dark Souls from any discussion of Best Of, <laughs> or it's just going to be the Dark Souls episode part two, which uh, we need to avoid for now. So yeah, um, I'll uh, I'll have a think about what track I want to do, but it'll be a non-Katamari Damacy one. Yes, yeah, so moving on then, um, I wanted to jump into a discussion about uh, quality of life features in games. Um, cause mm -hmm. you know, something, cause on this show we come, 
we review these older titles from the perspective as people who are new, who are checking out these old titles to see what all the fuss is about. You know, we're not going in with all this nostalgia that I think, uh, you know, a lot of other retro review shows kind of come up from. You know, lots of them are started because, you know, the person doing the reviews just loves these old games they're reviewing. But that is not really the case for us. Um, and, you know, as the kind of person who doesn't have a huge amount of nostalgia for a lot of these old titles, I think that quality of life features um, are the things that have been most consistently missing from the games that we've gone back into play, you know. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, there's been problems with save systems and weird controls, inventory management, lack of accessibility options, uh, unskippable cutscenes, no fast travel, that kind of thing. And, it, you know, it can really surprisingly mar an experience. Um, how have you been feeling the burn of the lack of quality of life? Well, it's interesting with all the things you mentioned I think a lot of the things that are identified as being quality of life improvements aren't necessarily as simple as being a strict improvement. I would say that a lot of these things are differences or changes in uh, game design. And the example I would cite is probably something like, I know you weren't fond of the game, but if we just talk about it in a mechanical sense... Uh, something like System Shock. So in System Shock, you're given objectives, but those objectives are derived from audio logs and notes you find around the place. You don't have a quest log where everything is neatly recorded for you, as in you have to do this thing now. And while, or you know, you have to go to this location and a quest marker pops up for you to follow. And... I think that if System Shock was a video game that was made today, uh, well, maybe not today, let's say a game that was made 10 years ago with the design sensibilities of that era, there would be a quest log that neatly tracked everything you wanted and there would be a quest marker that you could follow all the curves in the hallways so you didn't get lost. But the absence of these things goes a long way to creating a sense of atmosphere and forces you to pay attention to the world in a way that a lot of modern games don't make you do and that experience is a is one that I treasure when I was being spoon-fed so many games before now system shock is frustratingly annoying at multiple points with this system there's at one point you need to find like I can't remember, it's like a specific engineering part and you unlock a panel which unlocks it in another random place. It's ridiculous. I had to look up a walkthrough. So I, I, I'm not saying like every game should be like System Shock or that System Shock is perfect. I, I'm just saying that quality of life is kind of... I, I think sometimes the quality of life overall can sometimes be even better when it's lacking these features. Yeah, so I agree with what you're saying, um, that not all uh, quality of life features are necessarily quality of life features because they directly impact the game. I'm more talking about things like, for example, when we played Super Mario World, um, each level had a like a pseudo checkpoint in the middle of the level. Um, and once you hit the checkpoint, if you died, you'd be spit out to the main menu 
Um, but then when you went back into the level, you'd like spawn at that checkpoint. There's basically like no difference for having you spawn at the checkpoint when you die. Um, it's just like a bit of quality of life that's missing, right? Yeah, no, no, uh, don't get me wrong. I, I think that I agree with you that one of the things that distinguishes the old games from the new is how, uh, is that these old games just have so many time-wasting mechanisms and little annoyances that really, yeah. really piss me off. Like the way you interact with the inventory in Thief 2 is very annoying. You have to keep uh, touching the bracket keys to change one inventory item at a time instead of, you know, equipping specific items of your choice from your inventory on the keys, if that's what you wanted to do. Uh, you have to just keep going tap, 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 oh, tap, I just tap. rebound it to the scroll wheel. Oh, sure. Or, or whatever. Rebound <laughs> to the scroll wheel. Whereas I'd want to bring up a specific thing with a with a key press. Yeah, and like there are things in the inventory that just don't make sense to be in there, like your gold. Like why can't that just be on the heads up display or in a separate menu? Why do I have to scroll past it? I can't like use it as a puzzle, you know, solution or throw it at people. Um, there are a lot of weird things uh, Thief did in its inventory. I think uh, Thief and uh, System Shock's inventories in particular were a bit, uh, a bit annoying at times, uh, to put it mildly. I just really want to hammer on the fact that sometimes these things are intentional. Like, I think one of the great things that Dark Souls did was that you cannot fast travel at all until you reach the midway point of the game. And what that forces you to do is it forces you to kind of backtrack through its world and understand how it all fits and connects together. And it makes the journeys, you know, particularly the journey down into Blight Town um, and out again, very, I don't know, I, I think it's one of the most special moments in gamings that I've had having to overcome that challenge. But all of the other From Software games have just let you teleport immediately. And so those worlds feel nowhere near as interconnected as Dark Souls. Because once you go through an area, it's very possible you'll literally never go there again. Mm. So sometimes things which are an annoyance for the player in terms of quality of life can be good. Uh, as long as there's intention behind it. And there's a reason for it. Yeah. In um in Celeste, um, a platformer both Patrick and I have played, um, the designers put in a lot of little tweaks to make it feel better to play. For example, if you jump on the same frame as you hit a spike within a pixel of accuracy, the game will pretend you didn't hit the spike and let you jump anyway. Um, same with falling off the bottom of the screen, because the game tries to play to your intent rather than the, you know, the pixel perfect accuracy of what it's trying to do. And what that means is that oftentimes it just feels really good to play and there's never any of these moments where you're like, damn, I totally hit the button at the right time. I'm sure I did it, which I had a few times playing, you know, Super Mario World um, and a couple of other platformers we've done. I think that as th games have gotten older and as designs become more sophisticated, people have started putting focuses on making sure people are having good experiences um, rather than just designing a challenging game. Yeah, and it's not like Celeste isn't balls to the walls hard either. Yeah. It's like it's an easy game. It just gave a bunch of tricks for speedrunners who can now, if they get it frame perfect and pixel perfect, 
can just jump up walls of spikes, no problems. Yeah. <laughs> Celeste speedruns are pretty, are pretty nutty. Yeah, it's pretty to funny. Watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, all the, it's quite funny, all those little tricks. There's there's a really cool Twitter thread on it that just explains all the little bits and pieces they did to get that feel. It's just opened it up for so much abuse from speedrunners. So thank God for that. Um, Su- Super Mario has a Super Mario Maker has a problem where the hitboxes on the spikes and piranha plants feels awful because it's like a square box but the spikes and piranha plants as objects aren't square boxes so basically if you just hit anywhere within that box it just instantly kills you it's very frustrating yeah uh whereas celeste does a much better job communicating i guess the boundaries of the thing that might kill you and you know i think um you know the most notable frustration we've had in the show is controls a lot of the time i think uh Mm. when we started the show patrick you weren't much of a controller user you'd play dark souls on a controller but you are are the mouse and keyboard representative himself right yeah i mean this is kind of linking into what i was saying about um the difference between mouse and keyboard controls and controller uh, controls. So I guess we can just talk about that yeah. here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, and in fact, I was going to make the argument that uh, I would say in like 95% of cases, a mouse and keyboard is objectively the superior control scheme. Yeah, I disagree strongly. I think there are definitely... Um, so actually, let's go into specifics. Let's talk about what we think uh, each control scheme is good for. Um, and I want okay. to, I want to specifically point out uh, thumbsticks here um, as being far superior to mouse and keyboard in one key area, right? Um, and that is in having you know a full range of motion with a continuous input, right? So. With, you know, walking around in a 3D action game, you could control it with a mouse and keyboard. You can move left, right, forward and back with W, A, S, and D, but you have less control than you would with an analog input device, right? Completely agree. That That, that is the one of the big scenarios that I've acknowledged as it being superior. So theoretically, a mouse is an analog input device, right? Yes. Um, but how bad would it feel to move forward, back, left, and right using a mouse, right? Because you could. Well, you uh, don't. You can't, right? Because you'd have to. You'd move the mouse forward, and then you'd have to keep moving it forward, and then you'd have to like pick it up and pull it back. Because the mouse is mouse is really good for like quick jerky movement, right? But for continuous input, it's you just can't use it for continuous input, right? Whereas a thumbstick, you can hold in a direction. I agree. When it comes to controlling a character in third person in a 3D environment, analog stick objectively superior in terms of it giving you a far greater degree of control. Because, uh, you know, just just on a simple level, um, if you're using a mouse and if you're using a keyboard, you've got theoretically eight directions if you, you know, include the diagonals, but a controller has like 8,000. <laughs> With all of the, uh, with how precise you can be. 
I'm even not entirely convinced why thumbstick and mouse hasn't caught on. Um, I think that it would be a great input method for first-person games, being able to, you know, have that full range of movement with that accuracy of your aiming reticule. Sorry, I'm just trying to understand. So you'd have a... Yeah, you know, remember when the Wii was out and you had the Wiimote and you had that extra thing connected to it with the thumbstick? Like that, but connected to a mouse. Okay, I, I think, so basically you'd have your thumb on the thumbstick and then your four fingers would be on buttons underneath or something? Because that, that would work fine, right? Assuming that there was buttons and there was a, or like theoretically if there was a thumbstick popping out under your space bar on your keyboard. I'm just thinking through it. I, I don't think it's ridiculous. Like I, I, I guess the thing that comes to mind as someone who plays first person shooters is that you can rapidly, like, it's very, you can strafe left and right very rapidly, much easier than a thumbstick, because although a thumbstick gives you greater precision moving in any one particular direction, it will be slower in transferring rapidly between the four directions. Because when I've got my hands on WASD, I can pretty much instantly change direction. That's much harder to do on a... um. On a, th- on a controller, I think. Yeah, something that I think was a bit of a controversy for a while in the fighting game community is um, for a long time, many people played with either uh, controllers or, you know, a, a joystick box, right? Which uh, mm-hmm. was basically an arcade cabinet's joystick and buttons, but in a little box you could have on your lap to play fighting games mm-hmm. with. Um, and then this thing called the Hitbox came out, which was basically basically just playing with a keyboard, right? Like, instead of yep. a big joystick, there was a second set of buttons, which were the directions. And people were, like, able to execute things much quicker on that because they could you know you do a fireball input a lot quicker um by just going jerking it back yeah by just pianoing the keyboard and many people were arguing that it should be uh you know banned in some competitions but you know so because i think uh like you're saying digital inputs can offer a really rapid input as opposed to a thumbstick okay so james with that out of the way and the thing is i do agree on that point can you name any other thing okay so the i'll tell you with this the other point i had in favor of controllers is that a lot of the time it's more comfortable if you want to relax and kind of sit back with your feet up with a controller in your hand than it is to be hunched over a mouse and keyboard yeah absolutely in in terms of like uh i guess how good they are I think that mouse and keyboard in literally every other area is superior. Every other area to... Literally, name me any one area where a controller offers a better experience than the one we were just talking about. Like 3D action movement? Yeah, you know, 3D third-person action movement. Like racing games make more sense to me on a controller, but then again, even like having a steering wheel there... No, no, I agree with racing games. Racing games is another good point, although I guess I'd kind of vaguely group that in with third-person controlling a thing. See, to me, third-person controlling a a character or a a thing is almost like half a video game. That's so weird that you think of it like that. That's crazy. To me, that's like 5% of video games. Really? That's really weird. 
Um, like the only other, because you've got first-person character games, and then you've got more abstract kind of games, where with like RTS um, and menu-based games. Of the games we played this year. So Katamari Damacy. Let's go from the top. Katamari Damacy, easy controller, controller game. Yep. yep. Heroes of Might and Magic Three, mouse and keyboard. Crystalis. Crystalis. May as well be mouse and keyboard. It could work with either. I think yeah, that's pretty but, pretty even, honestly. Well, no, no. But the thing is, you could play it on a controller, or you could uh, the re. So when it comes to a game like Crystalis, which for people who don't know is like a 2D action RPG, you know, kind of like Zelda. Top down, yeah, like yeah, Zelda's a good comparison. Yeah, so you could play that on a controller, or you could play it on a keyboard and rebind the keys in whatever configuration you like. Instead of being limited to a specific grip by holding a controller. Yeah, but there is the comfort thing again that you brought well, up. Well, yeah. Right? So I'm not. So comfort is relevant, but in terms of your ability to play the game uh, accurately and rapidly, I think keyboard wins out in that situation because you just have so many ways to customize it exactly how you want. I still think it's even, but we'll we'll err towards mouse and keyboard. Okay, Sonic the Hedgehog. Mouse and mouse and keyboard. Keyboard? Yeah, I can say keyboard. Archimedean Dynasty. Can't even play it with a mouse. <laughs> 100% keyboard. Tribes Vengeance, another shooter. Uh, mouse, mouse and, and keyboard. keyboard. Sly Cooper, easy controller. Yep. System Shock, mouse and keyboard. Um, Freelancer. Um, Actually, mouse and I can't keyboard, remember. I, I think, think I went mouse and keyboard, yeah. But you could theoretically swap between for the dogfights. Okay. See, I'm going down. And Splinter Cell is a third-person game, yes. but I think I'd pr- pr- I preferred playing mouse and keyboard for that one. I mean, I think that you could go either way because of the sneaking speed, but the use of the mouse wheel to control the sneaking speed was a pretty good addition. So that was, uh, I, I mean, you could go either way, right? Like, it's not really a shooting game. It's a third-person For controller. stealth games, I do prefer a controller because I can slowly lean on the analog stick. Let, let's get to the game that matters. Kingdom of the Fire, Fire, the Crusaders. Crusaders. Yeah. Uh, easy, Mouse and easy controller. Me. Yeah, but, but if you had the, if that game was designed with mouse and keyboard It would be a completely mind, different game. It would have been way easier to control. Yeah, but it'd be a completely different game. Like, I feel like this game was made with the idea that it would be an RTS for controller. If you could move your squads and they were in control groups on the on the minimap, that would be an improvement, right? The fact that they had to deal with the retarded, you know, controller of consoles is not the game's fault. Like, they could have made a better game if they'd uh, if they'd done it for for computer. No, but I feel like this game was made with the challenge in mind. Like, I feel like they were like, all right, let's do it. Let's make an RTS for console so we can bust open a new market and sell millions. And it didn't quite work out for them, but I think they did a pretty good job. If Halo Wars can do it, so can we. I think, yeah, (laughs) I think this game was designed specifically with a controller in mind. Like, I don't think it would have been made sure let me let me get to the gist of my beef james because as long-time listeners of the show will know i hate consoles and i hate controllers that's not quite true i'm exaggerating but you get the idea whereas i'm very much in favor of mouse and keyboard controls and what i want to bring up my main discussion point is that i think uis have been barbarized and torn to shreds and made significantly worse 
because they wanted to create video games that were able to be played on a controller. Actually, I had um, the opposite in my notes. I had that thanks to glorious consoles, uh, UIs and control inputs became much more intuitive. Are you being serious? Yeah, I mean, okay, okay. Let's, take, let's take something like the universal interact button, right? How much better would System Shock be to control if it had something like that? Uh, other than, you know, controlling it like you've got 10 levers and like a, a rope hanging from the ceiling and steam comes out when you pull it down. I, I think that that comparison is unfair. Uh-huh. Yeah, let, let me explain why. Because I think that that was so early in FPS sort of controls design that the problems weren't because it was designed for PC the problems were that it was an early PC, it was an early game when they hadn't even come up with what a good control scheme for PC looked like. Let me use a more contemporary example where a game was, where game where a game's UI was changed for the sake of consoles. Is, is that okay? Sure. So you're familiar with Morrowind, right? It's not a game I've played a lot of, but you're familiar yes. with what Morrowind's inventory screen looks like. Yes. It's like a big grid. Right, It's just a big old grid on one side, and when you speak to a merchant, they have a big old grid on their side. You know what that is, James? That is the perfect inventory system. Uh, I think many people who play Diablo-style games would disagree with you. Okay, hold up. Let, let, me, let me just say it's not the most sophisticated because you don't have different tabs identifying different kinds of gear and stuff. But theoretically, an inventory system that presents you with as much data as possible is glorious. I love it. This under our game I've been playing, you just open up your inventory and there's all these tabs, but you can just see everything at once. I love it so much. The inventory system of Oblivion and then Skyrim, games which were more designed for console UIs, want to make me tear my hair out with how little shit you can see at once and the process of binding things to hotkeys because it was designed for people to press bit by bit instead of rapidly moving their mouse, uh, their mouse back and forth all over the screen. So my argument is that consoles destroyed the utilitarianism brilliance of PC UIs. Um, I feel like this example is like an example where a reasonable UI was made and then the same developer made a horrific UI. <laughs> I mean, that's also a fair point. Honestly, I'm not even going to try and argue against this. I think inventory specifically, uh, mouse and keyboard wins hands down. Um, but this is like you're taking a game made for mouse and keyboard and then weirdly translating it to another. Whereas, like, if you had a game that was made for controller and then you translated it up, I think you'd have the same kinds of problems. Whereas, especially with uh, analog movement. Uh, let, let me let me talk about a game that defined console shooters and is in fact a game that I like quite a lot but it's one that represented the change of how FPS games were designed. Um, I'm talking about, of course, Halo 1. You know, Halo 1 popularized the two-weapon limit. You know why Halo 1 had a two-weapon limit? Because of fucking controllers. That's why. There aren't enough buttons to have eight guns on a controller. 
I hadn't invented the weapon wheel yet. Yeah, the weapon wheel, which <laughs> solved that issue. Like, I think you're just uh, counterpointing yourself here, Patrick. I think people being bad at controlling, at creating uh, controller UIs doesn't mean that good ones can't be made, right? You know what else is bad about controllers? Auto-aim and the legitimization of auto-aim as a thing that exists and a thing that should exist. I mean, oh, I think man. all first-person games should be played on mouse and keyboard. I won't argue that. Do you know how mad I was, James, the moment I sat down and tried to play, I think it was like Call of Duty Black Ops on PlayStation for the first time? Oh, man, I was so furious because I saw the option for auto-aim and I turned it off because I'm like, this is a joke. I'm not going to have the game play the game for me. And then I would see the kill cam of someone killing me and they I could see the auto-aim. They were holding down the trigger in my general direction and the game was like, oh, you know what, you're close enough. And it pulled the that aim reticle to me and it killed me. Oh. Yeah, so it makes the game more about the fun things about oh. first-person shooters. Map awareness and strategy, not a, you <laughs> know, Twitch Duty. skill. Call <laughs> <of Duty. laughs> uh, The point is... And the point I'm trying to get across is that PC UIs and controls are glorious and I regret the sad times that led us off the path. Luckily, with the you know revitalization of the indie scene, we're starting to see video games return to the brilliance of PC UIs. But yeah, controller UIs are garbage and I feel... I feel very mad about it. As you can. The playing on the couch is just more enjoyable, like, factually, than sitting in my chair. So I just can't get behind this idea. I feel like I've played more games with a controller than I have with a mouse and keyboard. Maybe, but you are a degenerate, Maybe. so that's entirely uh, Okay. <laughs> I mean, you do only play first-person shooters. So. <laughs> and occasionally <laughs> stealth games. All right, James, um, time for my music break, right? Yeah. All right, Patrick. So uh, which game did you enjoy? So, like, I think that, like you, looking back on the games, um, Katamari Damacy absolutely had the best soundtrack. Uh, honestly, I think compared to last year, the soundtrack is a bit of a drop-off, honestly. Like, I think the soundtracks of the games we played last year were overall better. But the, um, I guess the game I want to highlight is definitely Super Mario World. I yep. think that game has excellent music. The only other one that really comes close to me is uh, Castlevania, the the OG Castlevania, which has... Has really good tracks, actually. Yeah, yeah, really good tracks. Like, I was really impressed. I'm not normally into that era of uh, digitized music, but it was really good. But got to give it to Super Mario. There's fantastic diversity and has a real sense of fun and adventure with every track. So here is Super Mario World.
that was some more music from Super Mario World. And, you know, like Pat, I agree that I think this year musically wasn't as good as last. I do still think there were some pretty good standouts, like uh, the first level theme of Earthworm Jim and the main theme of No One Lives Forever. I think, uh, mm. you know, there were some really good tracks. Oh, and the second overworld theme for Luna Silver Star Story. Definitely, uh, definitely up there for me. So... Moving on, Patrick, you had this uh, this notion of vulnerability topic that you wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a big one for me. So what I wanted to talk about and ask your opinion of was, as you said, this notion of vulnerability. Because for a very long time, James, I thought that I hated RPG games. And, you know, maybe I still do. But what I figured out is that it's not the idea of a character growing stronger that I dislike. It's that a character grows uh, less vulnerable as a game goes on. Or, I guess more accurately, grows less vulnerable to the point where they're close to invulnerable. Although there's always, you know, there's always a risk. And I've identified, like, games that maintain the um, the vulnerability of that protagonist throughout the duration. It includes, you know, Dark Souls, Super Mario, Thief, Halo, and Diablo 1. Whereas games I'd identify as being boring snooze fests, often, for your first playthrough, are ones where you're not vulnerable. And that stuff like um, Super Metroid, after about the midway point, when you get enough life upgrades and suit upgrades that reduce damage, that you can kind of just jump through all of the platforming obstacles and take negligible damage. Um, Dawn of War and Hero Might of Magic 3's late game, where you're just basically mopping up forces. You've basically won the game already, but you're just performing cleanup duty and uh kirby nightmare in dreamland where the enemies don't pose any real threat to you so you just kind of steamroll your way through the game and i think that vulnerability is in not i'm not gonna make an absolute statement but i'm i'm gonna say vulnerability is extremely important most of the time in creating an engaging gameplay experience it makes a lot of sense to me that the same person is saying this as is the person who said they would prefer to be matched only against pro players than to stomp people in Call of Duty every game. Um, <laughs> I think you've got a pretty big bias against power fantasy games, Patrick. You don't really, uh, you enjoy being the underdog, right? So I think power fantasies are enjoyable when they are done for limited periods of time um without getting too spoilerific have you played half-life 2 james um a little bit i played okay. up to the bit with the uh the there was like an airboat airship thing that you like glided yeah, sure. along this swamp and then i quit because it was boring as fuck yeah. worst part of the game but yeah so without um, i can't believe i'm going to avoid spoiling half-life 2 in the year 2021 <laughs> but here we go there's a part of half-life 2 where you're given a power fantasy that's incredibly fun and it lasts for about 30 minutes and it's right at the end of the game and it's awesome but so so when applied in very specific doses power fantasies can be fun 
But if that's the substantive nature of your experience, why the hell am I even playing a video game? Like, I'd rather, at that point, I'd rather read a book or watch a movie or anything. Because if my decisions don't matter and I can just steamroll through the game anyway, what's the fucking point? Just give me a visual novel or let me take my hands <laughs> off the keyboard and mouse and let the game play itself for me. Because well, you don't. Do you don't think the perfect game is one where you press a button and it says you win over and over? Like, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, uh, you're you're being sarcastic, but if no, the no, I'm not. not I, I tend to agree with you. I think that if I'm not challenged, I get bored pretty quickly. And the point where I drop a game, uh, or like a, a a deck in a card game, or a build in Path of Exile, is when I've been winning for too long and haven't been challenged. Um, if I'm no longer getting challenged, you know, I, I want my games to be like an ebb and flow where I'm getting, you know, challenged and then for a little while I'm, you know, way stronger than I need to be and then for a little while I'm way weaker than I need to be, you know. Mm. If there's that kind of like up and down sine wave of, you know, challenge and ease of access, uh, a challenge and power fantasy, then I'm having, you know, that's that's the that's the key curve that I want it to be nailing down. But it's pretty hard for a lot of... I guess stats-based games to nail that, especially when there's so many variables in the mix. I mean, I hate to bang on the drum. I actually love banging on this drum, but Dark Souls does that pretty successfully. Like it, um, what Dark Souls does is that your damage output goes up significantly over the course of the game. But even on New Game Plus or whatever, the torch-wielding hollow can kill you. Now you do become stronger like i'm not saying it's literally uh, you know you're literally as vulnerable as you are at level one as you are at level 50 but if you're not paying attention pretty much every enemy in the game can kill you so you're always at least somewhat vulnerable this is kind of one of the reasons and we've argued about this a lot that i don't like respects very much in games because Something that I like is when my character has a defined weakness that I need to overcome through play. Um, you know, uh, in a stealth game, usually you're not very strong in melee combat, so you have to avoid getting seen in order to overcome this weakness. And generally in lots of RPGs with, you know, skill trees and builds, uh, your character has things that they're good against and things that they're not so good against. And when you're, you know, knuckling down and trying to beat one of these, you know, uh, tough opponents that's particularly good against your character i can find the experience of overcoming that very rewarding so respects make me feel very uncomfortable because instead of overcoming this vulnerability you're just kind of manipulating what your character is vulnerable to and shifting that elsewhere so now you don't really have to overcome uh, your challenges and you know i've I have come down on my opinion on this over the years, and I think that games should have respec options, but I do uh, prefer it when you are kind of forced to face the things that are difficult for you. Honestly, James, I've also moved away from my opinion of unlimited respecs whenever you feel like it, because <laughs> the thing is, you do raise a valid point about that. Um, if you could just, for particularly for RPGs, if you could literally respec whenever you want you could be cheating yourself out of overcoming a challenge. Um, I just feel like you should err on the side of respects. And I like how, uh, actually, this is something that Dark Souls 2 does really well. I mean, pay attention to this moment. I'm saying something positive about Dark Souls 2. 
So Dark Souls 1 doesn't have respecs. Dark Souls 3 gives you 5 respecs per New Game Plus cycle if you go to a specific NPC. But Dark Souls 2 ties it to an item, which I think is the best way to do it. There's a super special secret rare item that you find very few of in the game world and you probably only discover one or two naturally that gives you a respect. So by giving it to you in very fleeting amounts, I think that it can stop you from getting soft locked. Uh, yep. which is possible, like, where you, it's not literally impossible, but it's just miserable to get past the challenge. So if something's not working, you can use it as a recourse without you doing it constantly, literally every fight. Whereas I felt like a game like Diablo 3, which lets you completely change your abilities between every fight, um, was kind of not where I wanted to be uh, on that system. I like it when my characters solidify into something... I can attach a story to these characters that I've created because I can, you know, recount the, you know, their trials and tribulations, how difficult their journey was and what gave them trouble, what was great, you know, when I was playing Dark Souls with my crossbow build and I finally got the, you know, the triple shot crossbow, that was glorious. And then I realized that, you know, it takes longer to reload, so I still had to, you know, overcome that weakness. I actually think this is a good link to something we were talking to about before, um, about the experience while learning how to play versus the experience once you understand the game and its systems. And basically, while you are learning how to play a game, when you're playing it for the first time, I want as many respects as I can. Because if, if I'm allowed to, I'd love to experiment with all these different builds. Uh, Divinity Original Sin 2... Once you get past Act 1, literally unlimited respects, as many as you want for completely free. And it's incredibly abusable, like you can maximize thievery and then steal everything and then get rid of your yeah. thievery skills. However, what it allows you to do is it lets you just try out new shit. It's like, you know what? I want to try out this character build. Boom, I'm trying out this character build. It's um, It's very cool. Uh, so while playing that game for the first time, it was really cool just being able to try everything. Once I understand a game back to front and I understand what build I'm going for and I understand where the items are that I want to get along the way, you don't need respects. And I think that the experience you described of, you know, my character is going to be strong in some fights and weak in others and I'm going to need to compensate with my ability for those ones... I think that's a very cool thing, and it's something that you won't necessarily have if you can respec at will. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the ones where it starts off free and slowly gets more expensive to you as you keep using it. So, you know, you get you get that period of being able to try something out at the start of your playthrough, but eventually you're kind of forced to settle on something as it becomes a bit too costly for you to continue to abuse it. Um, so that's really where I fall into. I kind of like that kind of system where, you know, you do get that degree of freedom at the beginning, but then you are kind of railroaded at the end. I mean, my only concern with that is that I feel like so many of those ARPG builds, are their late game points are informed by their early game points. So it often feels like all one and the same. Um, with Path of Exile, you actually do a lot of respecking. Um, like you take things early to make leveling easier and then you get rid of those points and move them out somewhere okay, else. Okay, sure. Yeah. See, I, I, I don't really get to the late game of those games because I get bored on the first bored? playthrough. Talking, yeah. talking about vulnerability, <laughs> ARPGs on your first run through 
are so fucking boring, man, because there's very little that can realistically challenge you as a character. Like Diablo 2, uh, Ariandel, the poison boss, is a problem, and Diablo is a problem, but that's probably it for the entire first campaign. Yeah, I've kind of fallen on the genre pretty hard myself because of that exact reason. Like, there's only so much right-clicking in a direction uh, with no resistance that I can do uh, before it gets kind of stale. Um, and, you know, while just the spreadsheeting, making characters and kind of, you know, figuring out what works was fun for a while, um, you know, eventually you get good at that and then you got to spend, like eight ten hours just you know face rolling things before you can get to anything that actually challenges you although there are people out there who do kind of like that and find it relaxing but it's just it's not for me anymore um and this conversation uh came about because of your thoughts when playing thief 2 right yeah like i think that uh thief 2 and just stealth games in general but i, I think thief 2 is one of the best examples of it is that your character is not a superhero. Like, they're mm. just a thief. They, the way when you play the game, you kind of see the world through an eye, through the eyes of a thief. You see a patch of shadows and you're like, thank God. And you sink, slink towards it and you sit there and you feel safe just hiding in the shadows. So you're very, very, very good at being sneaky and picking locks and hiding in shadows but you never want to get into a one-on-one fight with a single guard because you're vulnerable. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting that a game that has, by making you so obviously vulnerable in direct fights, it incentivizes you to play and role play uh, in a very particular way. You know, you're, you're very strong in a specific way and you're very weak in a specific way. And it leads to a, a better experience, I think, overall than even something like Dishonored, which by the end of the game, it's basically a superhero simulator instead yeah. of being a stealth game. And I think that um, being vulnerable, like in terms of your ability as a character and feeling vulnerable, um, are different things, but I think they both contribute to an overall engaging gameplay experience. Like, uh, I think Dark Souls does it well by having the, the penalty for failure be quite high, like you're sent back to a checkpoint a while away and you lose all your stuff. Um, I think that having consequence to your actions can really, you know, go a long way to make the world feel weighty and your actions to feel weighty. Like, for example, if I gave you a challenge, Patrick, um, and said that over the next, sometime within the next week, um you have to do you have to do a load of washing right something trivially easy to complete mm -hmm. but if you fail to do this load of washing um your family will explode and die um <laughs> despite despite that being like a trivially easy task to complete that'd be easy that'd be a, i feel like you'd be a little tense the whole week uh up until the moment of completing that trivial task right and yeah. i think that Games that give these heavy consequences can make you more immersed and engaged with them. See, see, it's funny because I was going to make the opposite point. I was going to say that you don't actually need to punish the player that much to create a sense of engagement. And what I would say is like the, the example I'd do is actually from Katamari Damacy because that's a game where 
the punishment for stuffing up in that game, like you run into something that's too big, is you lose a tiny bit of your Katamari. It's something, I don't know what it is, but it's a very small amount. And then you keep playing the game. The time limit is fairly generous. Um, not impossible to fail, but you're going to get there, I'd say, probably at least uh, at least 80% of the time without failing. So it's a tiny punishment. But having those small, like very small bits of punishment that's all you need to create an engaging experience i kind of think the katamari falls into my example right um you've got this very generous time limit which you're probably not going to fail but if you do fail it you have to do the whole level again which could be like 20 40 minutes of your time well at the end (laughs) sure but early on it's like three or four minutes i'm just worried that you know, one of the things I absolutely hated about The Lost Vikings, which is a game we covered in Season 1, is just how punishing death is and just how easy it is to slip up and die. And I think that the issue, the entire issue with that game is that it's so tense and awful because of how punishing failure is. And, you know, I don't think Dark Souls is anywhere near as punishing as it appears at first you and i have talked about this it's very much a psychological thing but if it was more punishing i don't think it would be a better game for it i i think that the key thing is that you are vulnerable and get punished hell thief you are vulnerable but you quick save all the time so when you get caught you might lose 30 seconds of progress that doesn't mean it's any less engaging it still sucks to get caught. Maybe the best middle ground is for something to be psychologically more threatening than it actually is. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. It has to feel bad. (laughs) Yeah, you have to feel threatened. You have to be afraid of things. But, you know, it can't be too crushing. Otherwise, you don't want to play the game, right? Like the Lost Vikings or... I think some of my Pokemon runs have ended because I've died and I forgot to save for a long period of time. Um, I think that stuff like that can, I think, probably turn the player off even. So, yeah, I mean, feeling vulnerable makes a game more engaging. I think one of my most engaging moments over the past couple years um, is a game that I actually didn't play that much of because I don't think it was all that was cracked up to be which was uh death stranding which was a uh you know a very talked about game over the past couple of years for how strange it was but there was this it's got this stealth mechanic right and the first time i encountered the stealth mechanic has got to be one of the most engaging moments uh i've had playing a video game like ever right because you're trying to hide from things you can't see um, there are these ghosts around you and they're trying to find you and you're, you can, you can send out this, like this ping, which will vaguely show you where they are. But if you do it, it kind of alerts them. So you have to like really tensely crawl around. I don't know. It, it's, it's so bizarre cause you're trying to hide from, uh, st- like unlike other stealth games, the shit you're hiding from just isn't on the screen. Um, and you know, once you got further into the game, you noticed that it was pretty hard for it to actually catch you. But that first time, man, it was so tense because there was that like threat there, even though that threat in the end wasn't an actual threat to me. Um, I'm going to talk about Daisy again because um, Daisy is a game that I think captures this idea perfectly now that you've brought that up. 
So Daisy, when it first started, you know, uh, for those who don't know, it's a first-person shooter survival game based on the Arma 2 engine, and there are zombies. And there are other players, and, you know, you're very familiar with this by now, with human beings being the real threat. Um, The other thing about this game is that at night time, the game went fucking pitch black. Like, (laughs) I had never seen darkness in a video game like this. Like... If you were standing against the shore, you would see silhouettes of things, but otherwise it was like you could not see anything. And when I first started playing, I had no idea what I was doing, and I was terrified of the zombies because the zombies would make moaning noises and I would be lying prone in a warehouse watching them shuffle about and I would be shitting myself hoping they didn't discover me. Once people had figured out that zombies couldn't actually catch up to you, everyone ignored the zombies. And what you would do is you would just run through everywhere, looting as you went, and you'd have 20 zombies chasing after you, and it wouldn't bother you in the slightest, because that's how you play the game. And it's all because of that that psychological feel of vulnerability that made that experience so gripping and tense but once you knew they weren't a threat and all the tension was released and you were just running around they may as well have not been there and the game started to become a lot more pedestrian yeah agreed i think that this vulnerability really is just uh the key to making a lot of games feel a lot more fun and engaging um i'm not also like you not a big fan of these big power fantasies um pat we're getting closer to the end now um did you have anything left to talk about no that's about it um hopefully you guys have enjoyed our rambling discussion about all of these ideas uh i've enjoyed talking about it hope you've enjoyed listening uh before we wrap up though james we should get into uh, i guess our best and favorite uh games of the year so i think let's keep this nice and simple so tell me your favorite episode that we recorded this year because sometimes we can record an episode where it's not our favorite game but there's just lots of good discussion i'll tell you my favorite episode then you can tell me your favorite game that you played this year and i'll tell you my favorite so james let's let's get started what was your favorite episode to record this season uh, my favorite episode to record was Archimedean Dynasty. Um, this little game about uh, being in a submarine uh, stuck under the sea in a post-apocalyptic future was easily my favorite episode to record because uh, we had a very long and winding discussion about the uh, the lore and the backstory of this game uh, and a really interesting discussion about the control scheme uh, and getting good at using said control scheme. I think it's... One of the actually one of the least downloaded episodes in our roster, but it by far was uh, the most fun for me to d- to record with you. I mean, it's not a surprise considering how obscure that game is, and this isn't me <laughs> just crapping on you like I did with Mega Man Battle Network, where literally every time I tell a person about this game, expecting they've got no idea what they're talking about, they're like, "Yeah, I love that game." <laughs> I get very, I'm like, "How do people know this?" Archimedean Dynasty is literally a weird MS-DOS game, so uh, I'd say that's why. But I agree with you. Um, it was it was a lot of fun to discuss, particularly the story. Um, very strong world building, and the manual that was attached to the game was actually quite a bit of fun to read. Yeah, for you, favourite uh, episode to record? 
So for me, my favorite episodes are always the ones where we end up in disagreement with one another, I gotta say, because while I it, it is always pleasant when we happen to somehow feel the same about a video game, at the end of the day, what I enjoy about this podcast is getting into a discussion and argument about video games. I like the opposing opinions. So I've got to say, my favorite episode that we recorded was definitely the System Shock one, where we had um, Nick on from Salt City Games. Mm. Uh, it was just really fun playing a game that I had, you know, wanted to play for so long. You know, the one of the grandfathers of, of the immersive sim. And then to see the sharp contrast in our opinions, because... By no means do I think System Shock is a flawless experience. In fact, I have a hard time recommending it to anyone who's not already enthused about environmental sims. But seeing all the history of the genre, like from a historical perspective, was awesome. And getting to argue about the validity of the UI was definitely a highlight for me. Because I think that UI has, uh, has more going for it than what most people would say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, although I will say, uh, I think that absolutely nobody on this planet should go back and play System Shock. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, if you've played Deus Ex, if you've played System Shock 2, if you've played Prey, I think there's something in here for you. But uh, yeah, you have to know what you're getting in for. Very rough around the edges. Even Pat won't uh, disagree on I agree that. With that. Very rough. <laughs> All right. Please. So moving on to my favorite game that we played this year. Um, in some ways, it's quite disappointing for me that the game that I enjoyed playing the most was the first one we played this year. Um, that being, of course, Katamari Damacy. But oh boy, mm. did I have a lot of fun in the short-lived, you know, joyous experience that it was. I don't think it's a game. I'd play again because I think that the joy is kind of a fleeting one that you can never get back once you've done it once. Um, but it's definitely something I think everybody should check out. Uh, it's very colorful and friendly and the tone's oh so weird, but god damn, does it deliver an extremely unique experience that is, you know, wondrous from start to finish. Completely agree. Katamari Damacy is wonderful. And I think it's like... It's funny, I can see, I'm looking at the episode now and there's rainbows popping out from either side of the king. <laughs> and honestly, that's that's you and I, James, because we were both so positive about the uh, about the game. That's I easily remember, the most positive we've both been together on an episode. It was weird. I remember I was speaking to a listener and they were like, yeah, so I've listened to a few of your episodes and my favourite one is the Katamari Damacy one because you were both so happy. <laughs> Whereas normally we're miserable and grumpy and critical and Katamari is just like, yeah, the game is just really fun and we had a good time. <laughs> what? Games are meant to be fun and enjoyable? How strange. Game played with a controller, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. If ever you play this game, do not change the controls. You've got to play with the classic controls that feel weird. Because yeah, it feels weird to get used to, but it will make perfect. a lot of sense to you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to cheat for my game of the year, James. You can't pick Dark Souls. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry. I, Dark Souls is automatically excluded. No, I'm going to cheat by picking two games. I'm sorry. Uh, 
I pick Leaf 2 and Splinter <laughs> Luna and Crystal's no. I pick uh Thief 2 and Splinter Cell because and the reason I'm cheating is that I can't choose between the two. I think when it comes down to it, Thief 2 is a game that I enjoyed the most overall, but the game that surprised me the most was absolutely Splinter Cell. Splinter Cell 1 was also my runner-up for second uh, most enjoyed game of the year, by the way, so I also quite enjoyed it. Splinter Cell basically... I didn't know this going in, but the more I played Splinter Cell, the more I could see that it was just that it had thief DNA running in its veins. Like the game really takes more from thief than any other stealth game I've played. And it's weird because it's set in like the modern day and you have guns and you have night vision goggles, but it really feels like they took the thief formula of sneaking around in shadows and getting rid of lights and incapacitating guards one by one and then it brought it to a linear focus like uh, instead of having a big sprawling mansion that you, where you have to go through every room and it takes yeah. three hours to play it just puts you in a series of um, corridors and rooms with mini challenges along the way so uh, overall i can't i can't, the thing is i just like that open level design of thief 2 but man, I cannot deny that Splinter Cell was a really tight, enjoyable stealth package. So, yeah, both both fantastic games and both ones I love dearly. Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid Three is a bit more linear than uh, than Thief. It's uh, I don't think it's quite as linear as Splinter Cell, but it's close, right? Yeah, Metal Gear Solid Three. Once again, I feel it's almost got taken a unique path. Like Metal Gear Solid Three is my favorite of all of the um, the Metal Gear Solid games, but its use of camouflage as the way to hide, I guess, is how I really identify that game, which is a really cool idea. But in practice, led to you switching camouflage micromanage yeah yeah the experience of playing that game is oh i crawl in a bush quickly open up the menu put on my camouflage now i'm leaning against a brick wall because i've got up now i need to switch <laughs> and you, you know what you that this. game needed a camo wheel well well what metal gear solid 4 does is it gives you the adaptive camo so it basically does it, it for just, you that's <laughs> yeah it gets rid of that it just says yeah you can just always be camouflaged and i mean yeah at the end of the day that system is just and that kind of micro menu management is less interesting than hiding in shadows so i can't i gotta i gotta give it to splinter cell yeah great game and like you i think it was a lot better than i uh, thought it was going to be going into it so i am very excited to play more of the splinter cell series going forward um so I guess that leads us to what we're playing next week, right, Patrick? Because, uh, you know, we're going to kick off 2021 in full swing and we're actually going to start playing some games again. Uh, we've had uh, a few weeks off now. It's been uh, very nice to get some uh, R&R, to be quite honest, but I'm very happy to be jumping right back into the back into the show for the new year. And we will, but first I need to plug the show, James. So, uh... My name is Patrick Arthur, and I've been joined by James Turlings. We co- both host the Retrospectives podcast. Each and every fortnight, except for our Game of the Year wrap-ups, we play a classic game of the past from start to finish. 
Uh, so we'll be looking forward to doing that moving into the new year and moving into season three. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. We've got all of our episodes there, including many, many articles that uh, both James and I have written. You can read my article about Daisy. You can read my article about Thief. You know, got to got to plug my own articles for my own podcast, and this is the best place to do it. <laughs> uh, most importantly... Uh, James's and I's our social media presence is probably pretty limited. I'm not. I'm in charge of social media, and I'm rather poor at it. Uh-huh. But the one thing that I am proud to have done, and the one thing that I love doing more than anything else, is pushing and engaging with our Discord community. I like that on Discord we can actually have extended arguments and discussions with nuance, as opposed to the clickbaity hot take short minor sentence statements that you see on things like twitter that just irritate me and make me angry and make me close the app down so we would love if you would come and join our discord server whether it be to give us feedback on the show a video game or if you just want to start an argument with me about dark souls 2 fight me anytime get in the cage lads <laughs> get in the cage so with that with the uh plugging out of the way please do come join us you're all welcome uh what game are we playing for next fortnight okay well we're gonna kick off season three in 2021 with a bang i am picking a game in a genre we haven't really done yet i guess we've done real-time strategies but we haven't done really like 4x style games yet have we pat so uh actually i guess Heroes of Might and Magic Three. It's is not correct. Ca- it's not. It's, it's you'd similar. Call, you'd call it. You'd call it turn-based strategy, but it's definitely a cousin of the genre. Yeah. So we're going to kick things off with Civilization Four. I am actually quite a big Civ fan. I've played the the hell out of five and six, but I actually haven't played any of the older titles. So I kind of was a bit nervous to go all the way back to something like Civ One. So I think we're going to play it a bit safer and start with four which came out you know just bang on the dot in around 2005 although we're going to cheat and play with the expansions yeah so um i've played civ 4 although i'm a bit vague on it i played a lot more of a game called civilization call to power which was kind of like a weird civ knockoff and it had some bits of four but I can't really... I've only got vague <laughs> memories of it. Yeah. And I've played shitloads of Civ Five with the expansions. Haven't ever touched Civ Six, So I've got a pretty scattered Civ history, but I'm at least, you know, familiar with the basic strategy that you need to employ. I'm excited to give Civ Four Beyond the Sword a try because I hear that it's got much more of a military focus. And I gotta say, I get really sick and tired of the warmongering penalties in Civ Five. So I'm ready to raise some cities. Well, I mean, the good thing about the Civilization games for me was always that they kind of embodied the perfect real-time strategy, which was you just get to sit there and play base building for like four hours, and then you're done. Well, I remember the way I used to play Civ Call to Power is I'd build like two or three cities. I would build an archer in each of them, and then I would build buildings. That's and it. I'd do that for hours. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, yep, I'm going to have the. I'd build wonders. Like each of my city would have like seven wonders, and I'm like, <laughs> yep, I'm going to win this game. You just keep building wonders. That's how you win. Yeah, it's like the way we played Dawn of War, but like more fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm eager to give it a crack. 
Well, uh, I'm excited for that too. So uh, we'll see you in two weeks, guys, for Civilization 4. Adios, friends. Bye.